approaching Easter in, uh, I'll put this over here. Whoever gets to it first, you can have it. Um, what, but after the service, okay? After the service. Um, <clears throat> as we're getting ready for Easter, one of the things I want to encourage you to do is I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. One thing that I want to encourage you to do on a daily basis is I want to encourage you to reflect on and to think about uh, the cross and what the cross represents and what Jesus did at the cross. But the other thing that I want to encourage you to do uh, each week is when you come to church on Sunday morning, I would encourage you to lean forward and to move forward. And, and when I say lean forward and move forward, I mean first of all in your heart, but also mean physically. That I would encourage you to lean forward. First of all, leaning forward into God and worship. And moving forward toward God and worship. Instead of hanging back. And the other thing I'd encourage you to do is to lean forward. Lean forward uh, to hear from God as we look at his word together and as you hear from God. And I believe that when we lean forward into God and we move forward towards God, I think we encounter God in a very, very special way. And so I want to encourage you to be doing that. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26. And uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. And we're going to be looking at the the suffering of Jesus in Gethsemane. Um, I don't know about you guys, uh, but my dad, I remember my dad used to say, uh, my dad used to tell me, he used to say, I can stand almost anything but pain, okay? I, I can stand almost any, anything but pain. And I'm a little bit like my dad, you know? I, I can stand almost anything but pain. Uh, pain is something that, um, you know, we don't really like to think of it this way, but in some respects, pain is a friend. Did you know that? Pain is a friend. I mean, most of us don't think of pain uh, as a friend. We think of Pain is something to be avoided at all costs, right? But that's why pain is your friend. See, when you feel pain, it's God's way of getting your attention to tell you that if you continue doing what you're doing, you are going to experience injury. So, for example, if I touch something that's really, really hot and I feel the pain of that, that, that heat, that th- that's God's way of saying to me, Gary, if you don't pull your hand back, you're going to get injured. And so in our lives, pain is a friend. Now, it's not always a friend, but it can be a friend in some situations. Well, there's pain, physical pain, and, and sometimes with physical pain, there's pain that says, I need to call a doctor. I don't just need to hold my hand back from what's causing the pain. I'm not sure what's causing the pain. I need to get help. I need to, uh, I need to talk with a professional And I need to seek the help of a professional to find out what's at the root of this. Well, pain, there's a lot of different kinds of pain. And there is obviously physical pain. But there's another kind of pain that's just as real. And that is, some people may call it psychological pain. Some people may call it emotional pain or mental pain. But I'm just going to call it soulish pain. Is that okay? In fact, our word psychological comes from two Greek words, suke, which means soul, and logos, which means word. So psychology is the word about the soul. So I want us to, to look at and think about the soulish kind of pain uh, and how it touches our lives. Uh, yesterday, I, I, I spent the day with some really wonderful people. Uh, I, I went down to Hayward. I had a couple of friends of mine who picked me up early in the morning. 
and uh, one of them pastors Arcade Church in uh, in Sacramento. The other one pa- uh, pastors Northside Church in Sacramento. Uh, Craig is the executive director of Next Generation Churches, which is an association of about 140 churches that we are a part of in Northern California. And then uh, Josh Lane uh, is in charge of this um, uh, leadership program that we do in partnership with Western Seminary. And so the, the, the three of us, we drove down to Hayward, and we met up with another friend of mine, Josh Roten, who's the director of church planning with NextGen. And what we did is we went and we visited a church there uh, that's called Bay Hills Community Church. And uh, you don't really know anything about Bay Hills. You might know a little bit about Hayward. Hayward has changed a lot over the last 25 years. It's changed pretty dramatically. And uh, Bay Hills Community Church, when we first moved out to California 25 years ago, it was considered one of the flagship churches of next generation churches. It was an extremely healthy church. It was a church that God was using to touch the lives of a lot of people. A lot of lives had been changed. Uh, the pastor of that church at that time was a guy named Glenn Skillian. And uh, I, I can remember going to different roundtable discussions and things like that with, with pastors. And I remember being able to sit at the table with Glenn Skillian. And as a young pastor who was just learning how to, to pastor a church, and I still didn't know what I didn't know, I, I remember sitting down with Glenn, and I knew that I knew a lot less than Glenn did. And it was kind of like, you know, when I was sitting down with Glenn at a table, I kind of felt like, I don't know, a high school football quarterback who's sitting at a table with a, you know, MVP, Super Bowl winning quarterback in the NFL. It's like, you know, you don't talk unless you're spoken to. You just listen and you learn and you absorb all you can. Well, uh, Bay Hills Community Church was a fantastic church that was having a fantastic impact on the lives of many, many people. And, uh, and, what, uh, and, and Glenn was a pastor there for 28 years, 28 years. He did a wonder, wonder, wonderful job. Uh, towards the end of his life, he had to retire because he had cancer. Uh, and after he retired, another man came in. His name is Peter Unruh. Peter, uh, he was the interim pastor for a couple of years. And Peter, is, he's a great guy, just like Glenn, uh, except a lot nicer. And, uh, and uh, Peter was there for a couple of years. And, um, and then Bay Hills hired a guy named Gary. You should boo and hiss when I say that, all right? Uh, Gary was the bad guy. Gary was the bad guy. And I can say that. I think I can say that in church. I know I'm calling him out. But I think I can say he's the bad guy because he's in prison right now. All right? Seriously. Uh, what Gary did in this church, this very, very healthy church, is he came in, uh, hired a lot of members of his own family, began to remove some people from leadership, began to put other people into leadership. Uh, began, he took out a huge loan uh, on the church against the church uh, that was used for salaries which is not very wise. And uh, on top of that, uh, he was writing checks to missionaries, but then cashing them for himself. Yeah. And what happened in this church felt like betrayal. What happened, it was betrayal. It felt, uh, it was extremely painful. A lot of people were wounded. And... um, and so what, when the, the church was just in desperate financial trouble, Gary, quote-unquote, 
felt the call of God to go to another church in Washington and began to do the same thing there. But then everything was discovered at the church in Washington. He was doing the same things there, and everything was discovered here. And then today, uh, he's in prison. A buddy of mine, a guy named Raul Robles, uh, came in and pastored Bay Hills Community Church for about 10 years, did a wonderful, wonderful job. Uh, helped the church eliminate all of their debt. And, um, and, and so what happened was, and, and he faithfully served these people as they were trying to continue to faithfully serve in their community. But yesterday what happened was we had to go down and we had to sit with them and, and we were, were doing, a, um, doing a study and doing an assessment. And we had collected a lot of data. A friend of, uh, a friend of mine, a friend of ours, a guy named Stan Reeb, had collected a lot of data. We had looked at all of this stuff. And uh, we collected data about the community. And uh, as we were looking through the data and as we were going through and we were interviewing the people, we had to share with them some really bad news. It's kind of like doing an MRI, a spiritual MRI, but doing it with a church. And what we saw is that this church, about 75% of the people are age 65 and older. Okay? But they're in a community where the average age is, uh, is, is about 35. And the church is about... Uh, about 80%, 75 to 80% Anglo, but it's in a community that's only about 12% Anglo. And, and so what we, what we saw as we were looking at this and as we were talking with people is you have a church that needs one kind of pastor, but you have a community that needs another kind of pastor. Do you understand what I'm saying here? And so, but you also have a church that's seriously under-resourced financially. And the truth is, they can't even afford a pastor. They can't. They just simply can't. And so what we had to do is this church that had once been hundreds, now is a church of between 30 and 35 people. But these are wonderful people. These are people who persevered through great difficulty. These are people who've been faithful. And they have faced and endured suffering, and they continue to endure it. And what we had to share with them is they're not really in a place financially where they can bring in another pastor. And which kind of puts them in a place where they can do one of three things. Uh, one of the things that they can do and that we will do with them if they decide to partner with us is we'll help them bring in a guy who can come in on the interim level. Uh, maybe another guy like Peter Unruh who can come in, who can love them, and serve them, help them through a time of great transition and difficulty. And, uh, and what they can do is they can be a part of helping to plant a brand new church that will begin to look more like the community that the building is in. That's one option. 
The other option is we can help them bring in an interim pastor who can... Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate that. We can bring in another pastor, interim pastor, but then we can help them... Um, we can help them partner and help them merge and be enfolded into a, a, a more vibrant, healthy church that is actually living the mission of Jesus in their community where they're reaching the people of the community. That's another, a third, a second option. And then the third option is that, that they can, um, that we can help them bring in an interim pastor who can love them, shepherd them, care for them, but then they can set a dissolution date where they will pass on their resources, it will be passed on to next generation churches, and then we will use those resources, and we will keep that building, we will keep that land, and we'll help launch a brand new church that's reaching that community. Are you with me here? Are you all depressed now? Um, I, I apologize if the way I'm telling this is, is depressing. It's just that, that for me, it was very, very sad to spend this time with people who have been faithful to Jesus, who are going through suffering due to no fault of their own. These people have not done anything wrong. They have been faithful to God, and they've been faithful in serving Him. But to share in the news with men who are old enough to be my father, Uh, one of those men has been in that church for 57 years. 57 years. He met his wife there, got married, raised his kids there. And uh, listening I, I apologize. I'm, I'm kind of getting high debt by my emotions here, but Watching them grieve great loss. And the truth is, in life, sometimes we face times of great sorrow and great loss, and it's not something that we choose for ourselves. Are you with me here? There are times where as much as we don't want to go through painful, difficult, heartbreaking uh, situations, that we face them just the same. And I don't I have no clue where I'm at in my notes. None of us is bulletproof. Okay? None of us is bulletproof. Nobody, nobody makes it through life without going through suffering. Some of us may even go through suffering of an overwhelming scale. People in this room, just as faithful to Jesus as people there, may go through suffering. You may go through suffering that is of an overwhelming scare, scale. But what do, you, what do you do when overwhelming suffering is imminent and unavoidable? What do you do with that? Because the, the truth is, you have to be ready for that. You do. Uh, you know, the thing is, is, is a lot of times, you know, nobody, usually when, when tragedy happens, it doesn't call us in advance and set up an appointment. It doesn't do that. A lot of times when tragedy happens, it just comes crashing through at a time that we're really not ready for it. 
And so the time to get ready and be ready is right now. Not that you have to live in fear. I'm not talking about living in fear. I'm talking about living ready. What can we learn from Jesus about how to face suffering without being overwhelmed by it? Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. I want you to read this with me, okay? Actually, I just want you to listen uh, as I read it to you. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. I'm reading from the NIV Bible, in case you don't know. It says, Then Jesus went to his disciples. By the way, immediately before this, Jesus has just told his disciples, Guys, tonight you're going to desert me. You're going to desert me. And you know what the guy said? No way. Even if we have to die for you, we will never desert you. Well, one of them was really loud. His name was Peter. You know what Jesus said to Peter? Truly, before the cock crows this night, you will deny me three times. Three times. How many? Remember that. Remember that. Three times. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. It means olive press. It's where olive oil is made. I've been to the garden. It's, it's right next to the uh, Church of All Nations. Uh, it, it looks across the Kidron Valley towards Jerusalem. And, um, and what Jesus does is he, he says to his disciples, he says to them, sit here, sit here while I go over there and pray. Can you do that, please? Just sit here while I go over there and, and, and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. You remember them, James and John? The two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. You know why Matthew says that he was sorrowful and troubled? Because one word just doesn't get it said. I mean, this is like great sorrow. This is not, this is not just kind of, oh, you know, I stubbed my toe. That when Jesus was in the garden, he was in great sorrow and trouble. Uh, verse 38 says, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Huh. That, 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 that my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. When Jesus says that he is sorrowful to the point of death, he's not saying, hey, I'm so sorrow, sorrowful, I want to die. No, he was saying that the sorrow that I feel feels suffocating. It feels like it's, it's just pulling life right out of my lungs. I am in agony. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground. I don't know if you've ever prayed like that. I've prayed that way a few times. He fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken, taken from me. Uh, the cup, remember as you read through Matthew, Matthew was written by a Jew, two Jews, Jewish Christians. And you have, to, you have to kind of know how Matthew is using language. And you have to know how Matthew uses uh, little quotations throughout the, the Old Testament. And whenever you see the word cup used in the Old Testament, you can do a study on it sometime if you want to. But, but whenever you see the word cup, it's not always used this way, but oftentimes when you read the word cup, 
it talks about the cup of the wrath of God. The cup of God's wrath. You know what that cup is? It is not a pleasant cup to drink from. And so what Jesus prays is he he prays, he says, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. One prayer. Then he returned to his disciples, Peter, James, and John. He found them sleeping. And he said, remember, these are the guys who were ready to go to die for him. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Couldn't you just be alert in prayer with me for one hour? They thought they were ready to die. They weren't even ready to spend an hour in prayer. Jesus isn't shaming them. He's just, he's seeking prayer from them and for them. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and he prayed the third time saying to them, this third time, remember? Prayed the third time the same thing. And then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now, folks, write this down somewhere. Ask God to write it on your heart. But don't ever forget this. Okay? The desperate sorrow and desperate suffering calls for desperate prayer. And sorrow and suffering is a part of, of living in a world at war with God. Sometimes it comes to us. It's no fault of our own. It just comes. Sometimes it does come due to maybe foolish mistakes we might make. But sometimes it just comes. And it doesn't make an appointment with us, and it doesn't say, would Tuesday next week be a convenient time? If it's not convenient, I'll come back the following week. You know, that's not what suffering does. That's not what tragedy does. It just comes. Desperate sorrow and desperate suffering calls for desperate prayer. Jesus is our example. He's our example of how to face sorrow and suffering through prayer surrender to the will of God. Four things I want you to see in this text. Four things I think are really important for you today. Number one, God wants us to know the agony of Jesus in the garden. God wants us to know the agony of Jesus in the garden. You know, the truth is that sometimes it's easy to be very, very mindful of our pain and oblivious to the pain of another person. Did you know that? You know, that, that, that a child, if a child skins his knee, it is like, 
traumatic. Meanwhile, the person next door may be grieving the loss of a child or the loss of a parent or the loss of a, of a spouse, the end of a marriage. And sometimes we can be very, very mindful of our pain and oblivious to the pain of other people. By the way, sometimes we can be very, very mindful of our pain and oblivious to the pain of God. We don't really sometimes like to think of God as being in pain. But understand that Jesus was in agony in the garden. This is not figurative speaking. This is real speaking. This is real life. Sorrow was real for Jesus. Sorrow was real for the the first generation Christians that Matthew was writing to in the Gospel of Matthew. Sorrow and agony is real in our world today. But sometimes what can happen is we can become so focused on our pain, we become oblivious to the pain of God and the grief of God. Every once in a while I'll hear someone who who comes from a skeptical background and and I try to always listen. Uh, I I try to listen, I try to ask questions when I'm talking with people who don't know Jesus. I I, I try, I I think, you know, I I don't spend a lot of time telling people what they should believe. I just ask people, what do you think? What do you believe? Help me understand. What does that look like? What, you know, why? And I try to understand people. But one of the things that I've heard from people, that people who are really struggling, and, and they're struggling with, with how to, to believe in God, and, and it's not that they don't want to believe in God, they're just struggling. Sometimes they, they, maybe they want to believe in God as much as you do, but they're just struggling, and, and their struggle is honest. But sometimes what, what I'll hear from people is, I'll hear them talk about how, how could... A loving God allow so much human suffering. Have you ever heard this before? How can a loving God allow so much human suffering? Meanwhile, they fail to see the suffering of God in His love for humanity. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Is there so stuck in this one area they're having a hard time grappling with and recognizing and seeing clearly that where they're struggling with, you know, how can a loving God allow so much human suffering that they don't see how the suffering God loves humanity? When Jesus went to the cross, and when Jesus was in the garden, he was in agony. Agony. That when the, the, the scriptures here uses uh, three different words here to describe Jesus that, uh, first of all, he was sorrowful, lupeo, which means to be, um, uh, it's translated as grieved, anguished, distressed. That he was, uh, he was troubled, automaneo, uh, which means to be uh, distressed, very heavy, agitated, deeply distressed. What Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to say, you know, being sorrow, sorrowful just doesn't get it said. And, and so he's adding another word here. And then we see in verse 38, it says, it, it, Jesus says that he was overwhelmed with sorrow, paralupos, which means to be crushed with grief. Interesting word, crushed, because, because that's what Gethsemane means, to, it, the crushing uh, of the olive, the olive press. That, that, that it means to be crushed with grief, grief to be exceedingly sorrowful. That Jesus was grieved to the point of death. That he felt like that his grief was sucking the life out of him. That Jesus was on, that he was in agony, and the agony he faced was the agony, not just the agony of being betrayed by a close friend, 
Jesus loved Judas for three years. You know what it feels like to love someone, really love someone, and be betrayed by them? So does Jesus. Jesus knows what it feels like to be abandoned by his friends. Have you ever felt abandoned by your friends and totally alone? You ever feel that way? Jesus felt that way. Have you ever had someone that you thought you could rely on deny you? Jesus has. The, the, the suffering of Jesus, the agony of Jesus, was, it was relational agony, but it was more than that. That he was, he was put on trial under trumped-up charges. You ever been falsely accused of something? You ever have somebody tell something about you that's blatantly untrue? I have. They tell one piece of the truth, everything that relates to you, and they fail to leave out, or they, they don't fail to leave out, everything else. And, and you get falsely accused of something you simply didn't do. Um, you know, that Jesus was tried on trumped-up charges. He felt the agony of rejection by his nation. The entire nation cried, crucify him, crucify him. Rejected by his own nation. He experienced the, 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 the agony, the suffering of, of beatings, multiple beatings. The agony of being mocked. The agony of having a, a, a crown of thorns pressed in onto his head. He felt the agony of the piercing and bruising of his hands and his feet as they drove the nails in. That Jesus experienced great agony. And beyond all that, he experienced the agony of having every shameful thought, every shameful deed, every shameful word I've ever said and done and thought placed on him. And he had all of yours placed on him. A holy God clothed in my unholiness. You, the, the sin of the world. Think of war crimes. Think of, 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 of just every despicable thing ever done by a human being to another human being. And Jesus bore all of that guilt and shame on himself. You know why? Because he loved you. And he loved me. But beyond all of that agony, there was the agony of drinking from the cup the wrath of God, God's wrath, forsaken by the Father on the cross. You know, when we reflect, really reflect and think about, see, sometimes, it, I don't know about you, you probably don't do this, this is probably just a Gary thing, okay? Sometimes I read the Bible and for, kind of forget what I read. I, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Uh, you know, sometimes I read, but I don't really reflect, and what God wants me to do is he wants me to do more than read. He wants me to be, to reflect and be shaped, shaped by the scriptures, by reflection, careful thought, meditation on the suffering. Of, that, that's what we do. I hope and pray that after today you never take communion the same. I hope and pray that, that today, for the rest of your life, every time you hold the, the cup and the bread in your hand, that you reflect on the suffering of Jesus and that you worship worship. Not, nothing in shame. Nothing in guilt. Just 
reflecting on God's amazing, awesome, overwhelming love for you and for me. But I think God wants to know the agony of Jesus in the garden. Uh, there's a guy, his name is William Barclay. He's been dead for a while, long time. But, but, but Barclay says this about this text of Scripture. He says, he says, surely this is a passage. He's a, was a New Testament scholar a long time ago. Uh, he says, surely this is a passage which we must approach upon our knees. Uh, here, study should pass into wondering adoration, worship. Uh, second thing God wants you to see in this text is God wants us to follow Jesus in his example of prayer. He wants us to follow the example of Jesus in prayer. Well, what does Jesus do in this text? He withdraws from his disciples. Why? For the purpose of focused prayer. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've got to get away from people to really pray. You know, if there are a lot of people around, I'm distracted. That's just me. But sometimes we need to withdraw from other people for the purpose of prayer. And sometimes what we need to do is, is depending on what we're facing, sometimes we need to enlist the praying of others. You know, there time, this, the other day, I, I think it was Friday, I emailed all of our staff, all of our elders and their spouses, and I asked them, would you please pray for me? Would you please pray for me as I'm preparing uh, to, to, to teach the Word of God? And what I did is I asked them, I said, please pray for me. Pray that I will preach the Scriptures with clarity and with boldness, okay? with humility. But sometimes we need, to, we need to withdraw for the purpose of prayer. Sometimes we need to enlist the praying of others. Sometimes we need to pray and pray repeatedly for, for God's intervention. Uh, that's what Jesus is doing here. Is he didn't just pray one time, not just two times, but three times. He, he, is, he is praying again and again and again. And sometimes we need to pray again and again and again for God's intervention. Not that the cup is going to pass us by, but that he's going to carry us through it. But we need to continually bring it to God again and again and again. But most of all, we just need to pray like Jesus. That God wants us to follow Jesus in his example of prayer. Number three, third thing I want you to see in this text is that, that God wants us to pray so that we won't fall into temptation. You know, I, 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 it, it's, it, you know immediately after this text, we read about one of the first trials of Jesus and we read about his first beating and, and being mocked and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and then we read about Peter denying Jesus three different times. And a lot of Bible teachers believe that there is a connection by that, that threefold praying of Jesus and that threefold failure of, of Peter. That, that why was Jesus wanting Peter to pray with him? So he wouldn't fall into temptation. You see, Peter had boasted he would never deny Jesus. Boasted. He wouldn't deny. Boasting doesn't get it done. Boasting doesn't keep us from falling into temptation. But praying can. And so what Jesus did is he, he, he taught him to watch and pray, to be alert in prayer. Watch and pray so that you what? will not fall into temptation. You know, if, if you are falling into temptation, if there's an area of your life, then I, I'd really encourage you Maybe you are praying. Maybe what you need to do is you need to enlist the prayers of some other people. And you need to say, hey, I'm really struggling with an area of my life. Would you pray with me and pray for me? But pray. That pray. That, and that God wants us to pray so that we won't fall into temptation. Number four, fourth thing I want you to see in this text is that God wants us to pray 
Not to get God to change his mind. Okay? Uh, Please, hear this. God wants to pray, but he doesn't want me to pray for God to change his mind. Ultimately, God wants me to pray that God will change me. That God wants us to pray surrendering our will to God's will. That, that ultimately it's not about me getting my way with God, but ultimately it's God getting His way in me. And that God wants us to pray surrendering our will to God's will. When we face suffering for the sake of following Jesus, God wants us to pray surrendering our will to God's will. You know, it's really fascinating. I've recently been reading through the book of Acts, and, and again, and, and it's fascinating to me is, is that these early Christians were, were suffering and being persecuted for the cause of Christ. And you read about their prayers, and you know what they prayed for? They prayed for boldness. They didn't pray, God, get our enemies. They didn't pray, God, make all the suffering go away. They didn't pray, God, stop us from being persecuted. That's not what they prayed for. They prayed for boldness. They prayed that God would have his way and his will in their lives. That God wants us to pray surrendering our will to God's will. When we face suffering for the sake of following Jesus, I already said that suffering was a reality for Jesus. It was a, a, a reality for the early Christians that Matthew was writing to. And suffering is a reality for Christians following Jesus in our world today. Well, what am I saying? Okay, uh, think about this for a moment. For, for those of us in America, that's you, okay? That's you, just in case you're wondering. I'm talking about you right now. For those of us in America, if you live in America, you need to pay attention to this, okay? Because I'm talking to you about you and about me. For those of us in America who have been greatly protected from the suffering and persecution that other Christians face in other parts of the world, uh, this reality should be very sobering for us. It should be very sobering. Uh, we need to be careful. We need to be careful of, and, and this is very concerning for me in North America today, we need to be careful of a consumerized, Americanized gospel that promises all the benefits of salvation with none of the suffering. Now, I'm not saying you should go out and start looking for opportunities to suffer. That's not what I'm saying, all right? Let's just be, it's not about that. It's about being grateful and recognizing that we have brothers and sisters who truly suffer. You know, for me, I mean, okay, so someone speaks an unkind word to me. I don't know. I I don't get a promotion at work. (laughs) Well, okay, I don't get a promotion at work. I don't know. My, my, My neighbor says something terrible about me, that crazy Christian next door, all right? I don't know. That's not persecution, okay? That's not, that's not persecution. Over the last 100 years, more Christians have died for the cause of Christ than any other, than the previous 19 centuries combined. Thinking about the suffering of Jesus should be sobering for us. And it's not something that we should, you don't have to feel bad for not suffering like other people suffer in other parts of the world. It's just about being grateful, being aware and valuing Christ's suffering for you, and their suffering for Christ. And it should encourage us to pray for them. Okay, I'll, I'll tie this up. Like my dad, I can stand almost anything but pain. 
The question is, what can we learn from Jesus about how to face suffering without being overwhelmed by it? Jesus is our example of how to face sorrow and suffering through prayer and surrender to the will of God. The desperate sorrow and desperate suffering calls for desperate prayer. Let's pray. God, today, uh, I pray that you would help us to be uh, grateful and, 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 and not, not afraid of suffering that could come our way. Not, God, we don't want to be a fearful people. Uh, we, we don't want to be afraid of what could happen. We want to worship you, and we want to live courageously. That's what we want to do. And, and Lord, we, we want to be grateful, and we want to appreciate, and we want to value the suffering of Jesus. We want to, to value, and we want to worship him because of how he took the cup of your wrath for our sin. So we want to worship you, and God, we, we want to... We want to follow the example of Jesus in prayer. That we want to be people who, who that we, we, we pray like Jesus, that we follow Jesus in his example of prayer. And we want to be people who pray so that we will not enter into temptation. And, and, and we, want to be, uh, we want to be people, God, who are a worshiping people uh, because of what you've done for us. And we commit this to you in Christ's name and for your glory. And God, I want to pray for a moment. I want to pray for our upcoming egg hunt. I want to pray for our upcoming Easter celebration. And I pray, God, that you would use us to touch people in our community for the cause of Jesus. In Christ's name.